Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. regular library user. You probably have experienced browsing the same shelves visit after visit. You run your hand down the spines of the books and don't notice a discernible difference from the last time you came in. But it is different from the last time you came in, and the time before that, and the time before that. A library's collection of books is constantly evolving, shrinking and expanding as librarians weed out materials that aren't being checked out anymore and add newly released books. If we could turn back the clock 15 years, you might detect a change. If we turn back the clock 30 years, you would definitely notice. What if we turn the clock way back, say 180 years? What kind of books do you think you would see on the shelves? What kind of topics do you think people would be interested in? Who do you think were the people writing and publishing those books? Jim Borzilleri from the Athenaeum's Reference Department has been poring over the catalogs from 1841 and 1900 to see what kind of books the library had at the time and what their importance might be today. Jim and I handpicked a few dozen items that offer a sampling of what was available to Athenaeum patrons in the mid to late 19th century. If this seems a bit too obscure for you, or you can't imagine what would be interesting about a nearly two-century-old list of books, bear with us. I think you'll be intrigued. Jim, can you talk a little bit about, put this into context. So if the average person looked at this catalog, it might look like a strange list of books, but put us into the context of 1841. Oh, sure. Well, it would definitely look like a strange list of books. Uh, but before we get started, I want to do a shout out to Betsy Tyler, who is the author of the Nantucket Athenaeum of History, which is just a wonderful resource uh, as I started to go back and look at this. But to get back to your question, to put it in context, well, as we know, Nantucket has always had its ups and downs, but the 1820s and the 1830s were, for the most part, a fairly prosperous period. The best indicator is that the census population for the island actually hit its high point for the 19th and really the 20th century, which was around 9,000 people, and that would be in, in 1840. And as a group, they were very cosmopolitan, very, very well-traveled, and anything but insular. At the same time, uh, the Quaker influence was starting to wane a little bit. There had been several schisms, and many islanders had left the Quaker faith and were joining other less austere but usually Protestant faiths. And as a result, there was an increasing exposure to and demand for music concerts, art exhibits, and a wider range of books uh, on topics beyond what the Quaker faith had probably permitted or considered acceptable. And so a lot of new organizations were springing up to meet this demand. At the same time, uh, there were several business organizations that were sort of starting uh, on their own. Uh, there had always been the Pacific Club which had been a very elite organization that was really for the ship owners and the captains. There had also been some informal gathering places, but now there was, for example, a new commercial reading room, which by subscription would supply you with the latest newspapers and the journal and also gave you another place to gossip. So there were several places where you could continue to learn something about uh, your business life. Now people are sort of focusing on aspects of their lives that had nothing to do with what they might consider their careers or their professions. 
And two private entities were founded in the 1820s to meet this sort of non-business need. And they were explicitly designed to, as they would say, uh, enhance the cultural and moral education of its members. And those are the words they probably would have used at the time. But when they defined their membership, it was almost exclusively male and definitely all white. We don't think there were any people of color who were, who were, who were part of these groups. The first one had the name of the Nantucket Mechanics Social Library. And back then, mechanic referred to anyone who was a skilled artisan as opposed to, let's say, a professional like a minister or a doctor. Uh, but in spite of this name, uh, the cost of this of joining it was fairly prohibitive. So most of the working class islanders probably couldn't afford to belong. The other organization that was founded along roughly the same lines was called the Columbian Library Society. And they both did pretty well, but in 1827, they merged together and created a third organization called the United Library Association. By the early 1830s, the ULA had almost a thousand books and they were looking for some space. So they put together a fundraising effort with the hope of building a brick building on Main Street to house not just the library, but also a museum and possibly a meeting space. Um, but because of the prosperity at the time, they, they exceeded their, uh, their goal. And so they looked uh, for something a little larger and a little better, and they settled on what had been the Universalist Church on Federal and now India, but uh, back then it was Pearl Street. And so uh, the, in 1834, they reincorporated and now called themselves the Nantucket Athenaeum, and they began to remodel this church. But again, this was a private organization. The membership was kind of steep. You could buy a single share for $10, and that would make you a proprietor or a shareholder. If you didn't want to have a voting right, but you wanted to be able to just read the books, then that would be $3. And if you just wanted to go visit the museum, that would be 15 cents. So they, they had kind of structured things along different price levels. Women were admitted, we think, from the beginning of this particular organization, but they weren't allowed to participate as officers until well into the 1870s. And we're pretty certain that this remained uh, an exclusively whites-only organization. This is pre-public library. So it, it's very different from, as people know the Athenaeum now. It was a very kind of specific clientele that it catered to. Correct. And in, in a way, given its pricing, you might think of it as like almost joining like a health club. Uh, <laughs> it, it's not so exclusive that you're joining like, you know, a golf club where you have to be nominated. You do have to have some money, but it's not going to be cheap. And it's not something that is, you know, within the price range of a lot of the folks on the island. So, yeah, it is kind of exclusionary in that sense. And was it successful? It was very successful because things were prosperous at the time. Uh, again, when they did their fundraising, they exceeded their expectations. They had plenty of members. Uh, we know they started out with a thousand books, but they definitely increased that as time went on. And the best sign of it is the catalog of 1841, uh, which is, it runs to like 72 pages. I haven't mm -hmm. read that. So I think we're up to, I think it called for 750 linear feet of bookshelf space when they first did the remodeling. So, you know, they definitely were growing. Okay. So that's kind of how the Athenaeum was founded in functioned uh -huh. at that time. So what happened that makes this cal catalog of books valuable to us today? Well, it's valuable for a couple of reasons, because it gives us a sense of what kind of books were considered important for an organization like this. And again, they weren't really focusing on business, but they were focusing on how to improve, I guess you would say your moral character, how to improve your, you know, your understanding of the culture around you. It would expose you to good, you know, the great books and the great thoughts that prevailed at the time. 
So when you look at it, and this was long before anything like the Dewey Decimal System that we have now, Mariah Mitchell kind of put together her own system of organization, and she came up with 10 very general categories. Uh, and they ranged from ancient and modern history to something called jurisprudence and orations. Uh, theology, ethics, and metaphysics had its own category. And there was something else called moral, critical, and philosophical treatises. And this kind of gives you a sense of the kind of books they were looking for. They absolutely had books on physical science and natural history. They had quite a few works of fiction and drama. But the categories I gave, those are like the first four or five categories. What's also kind of interesting, if you look at, for example, history, she had it broken down into three subcategories. The first one was American history. Then there was the history of England, Scotland, and Ireland as its own group. And then there was kind of France, Italy, et cetera, et cetera. So that was sort of everybody else. Another thing that makes this catalog valuable for our eyes today is this was five years before the Great Fire of 1846 that destroyed a large part of downtown, including the original Athenaeum building. Yeah, absolutely. And almost all the books. During the night of the fire, they tried to pull out the most valuable items that they had. Unfortunately, uh, the fire spread and they tried to move these items two or three times, but eventually the fire caught up with them and everything was lost. So the only books that we held on to were the handful that just happened to be checked out at that particular moment. I hadn't even thought of that, that the only ones were preserved that the people had actually gone and checked out and brought home. And that was all that was left of their collection. Correct. And not just the books. I mean, this was all the records of anything to do with the Athenaeum or any of its predecessors. So, for example, we have no, you know, when we say we think that they had uh, female members and we think that they didn't have any people of color as members, we don't know. Because when you look at the first document we've got, it's when they got together after the fire. And it just basically says, we lost everything. We have nothing. We have nothing left. Now that Jim has given you a sense of time and place in which the 1841 catalog existed, Jim and I are going to zero in on specific titles. For this episode, I asked Jim to talk about Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. It's interesting because it's probably more valuable to us today than it was at the time. I think most people have heard of it, perhaps when they were studying history in school. He was a Frenchman who toured the United States and was absolutely impressed with what he saw as the democratic experiment. And he went back to Europe to explain to the other Europeans that America was representing something truly new and truly exceptional uh, in terms of, you know, its form of government, that it really was trying to be a Republican government, that it had been at that point successful for almost 50 years, whereas France had tried and failed miserably, uh, along with some other, you know, attempts at republics in Europe. And so he really sort of tried to define what was the American character. And it not only resonated with the European audience that he was writing for, it also resonated with the Americans that allowed them to sort of define themselves after listening to someone else's, you know, sort of impressions of what they thought was important about the United States. As time went on, it became an increasingly important book of just how Americans saw themselves in relation to the world. To go back to the fire, uh, we think that what was lost was probably the first American edition. So this was also an exceptionally rare book. It would have been interesting today to get that perspective of the outside looking in because it's important to remember this was only 
what 60 years after we became a country. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. so we were still, Americans were still figuring it out at the time. And then to have an outsider come in and give their perspective must have been really fascinating. Yeah, it was. I mean, there was quite a few Europeans who would sort of do the tour and come to America, but a lot of times they could be very, very dismissive. Uh, de Tocqueville was unusual in that he was, you know, mostly favorable, but not completely. And so he saw us in kind of a warts and all kind of approach. And I think that's why it's still remembered today. Well, and what's interesting too, is that he, his original purpose for coming was actually to tour the penitentiaries at the time. Exactly. And he started in California and then I think made his way East. So this wasn't the book he was planning to write, but while he was there, it was that interesting to him. And he thought it was that important to go back to France and really report on what's going on in America and that perspective. Exactly. And at the time of the fire, when we lost our copy, I mean, the book was, you know, all of eight years old, it was still a fairly contemporary work. So it'd be as if, you know, something important was published, let's say in our lifetime, 2013. You know, it's like we can recognize it, but perhaps its full, you know, resonance and its full meaning is not going to be understood for several decades. When we look at the catalog, we're kind of looking at it with modern eyes. So that jumps out to us in a way that would probably be very different for someone at the time. They would probably pick two or three other books and say, no, these are more important than this one. This is a new book. It's nice, but, you know, it's probably not going to last. Which is funny. That's what we talked about when I talk to you about the vault and mm-hmm. under you know you do, it really is a crapshoot to a certain extent you don't know what's going to be valuable it's really easy to sit here and say oh i'm going to save these things because i think they're going to hold up to the test of time and then it turns out they're completely irrelevant in 15 years oh yeah absolutely and it would be sort of a strange idea but you know if you think if we were looking over their shoulders to see what they were bringing out would it be the books we would have picked production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Also thanks to Betsy Tyler, author of The Nantucket Athenaeum, A History. It's available to borrow at the library. Please check the episode notes for resources and references, including the definition of the word panopticon and how it relates to de Tocqueville's work. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. Join me next week to see what else you can find on the shelves of yours.